you know, you might be at 75% today, but you've got to find a way to give us 100% of that 75% that you got on that day. Hello and welcome to Ahead of the Curve, your source for the most up-to-date coaching strategies for player and coaching development. This is your host, Jonathan Gilner. Today we're joined by a big-time guest, Coach Wes Brooks. Coach Brooks is the head coach at Oxford High School in Oxford, Alabama, and on the show he takes us through an entire year of player development, and we discuss how he develops competitors, but more importantly, great young men on and off the field. You better have your pen and paper out for this one with Coach Wes Brooks. Coach Brooks, thanks for being on Ahead of the Curve. Awesome. Glad to be here. Been looking forward to it. Uh, end of the season. Just deci- excited to uh, to start talking some ball and, and planning our basically our 365-day plan to, to see what we can do to get better for next year. Well, I'm so thankful to have you on, and I'm so excited to hear your insight today, and I know our listeners are as well. But before we get started, can you tell us a little bit about your story and you know why did you get into coaching? And when I was eight years old, uh, I got moved to the catcher position. And obviously, being an Atlanta Braves fan, I was a big time uh, Bruce Benedict guy, and uh, just just kind of fell in love with the catching position. And as I grew older, probably sophomore, junior in high school. My dad became a volunteer coach, and man, he was just an awesome person. I was blessed to uh, to have my dad as long as I did. And when I went into college, I, I just knew um, that I wanted to be a coach. So catching bullpens in college when our pitchers would develop a new pitch or, or maybe work on pickoffs or holding runners, I'd always listen to our, to our coach, wanting to learn myself, but at the same time knowing that I was going to be a coach down the road. Uh, I was probably a more of a power pull hitter in college, and when our hitting coach would coach our guys, our inside-out guys, our middle-away guys to hit, I would always kind of you know, be interested in what he had to say. I would take ground balls uh, during batting practice and work with our – so I just kind of had a knack for wanting to know all the positions. I still don't know it all, obviously, and there's so much more to learn, but just growing up, I felt like I was going to be a coach for a very long time. My dad was was our volunteer uh, coach in high school. He basically ran the team. Uh, he passed away my freshman year in college, and my college coach kind of took me under his wing and just kind of helped me uh, in, in all phases of life and was a great mentor um, during that time period and played one year of independent minor league ball in the Frontier League and in 2000. Got offered a coaching position at the school that I graduated, and I've been coaching for 17 years ever since. So I guess that's kind of my lead-in story. And so what's the school that you're at right now? I'm at, I'm at Oxford High School now. I've been here since 2005. I coached at my alma mater for five years, one year as an assistant and four years as a head coach. And um, just so happened to, to get lucky and run into the right person, and we met and we talked, and I came to Oxford in 2005. and just finished up my 12th year here, ready to get started on number 13. So tell us, what does it mean to be an Oxford Yellow Jacket? What do you guys stress to your players? Well, I guess uh, the biggest thing is our team meetings. Uh, they last about 20 minutes before we get out onto the practice field every day. As, as we start up in the fall, we'll start kind of coming up with our own definition of what it means to be an Oxford Yellow Jacket. We will take the definition of what it was the year before 
and our senior leaders, our junior leaders, our older guys, you know, they can kind of add something or take away something in which they think is a makeup of our team. But our colors are black and old gold. And we got a little acronym of jackets uh, that we use as our core values. And the J is judicious, you know, show good judgment in all decisions and knowing how that your actions can affect your teammates. Uh, A in jackets is accountability, holding yourself and your teammates accountable. C is character, doing the little things right all the time on and off the field. Uh, K was a tough one to come up with, but our guys voted on keen, and that's basically keeping the edge sharp physically, mentally, socially, and spiritually, embracing and uh, appreciate the process, and then E is for excellence, be at your best when your best is required, which is every single moment of every single day. Um, T is tenacious. Uh, that's kind of changed over the years. That's kind of one of the ones that our seniors look forward to is coming up with the new T. I don't know why it was like that, but I let them have fun with it. So tenacious was our word for the 2017 season. And the definition of that is we always try to pursue excellence with a relentless effort and toughness. And then obviously S is pretty much everybody's S word is selfless. Uh, put up, put OHS first and serve others. And we are committed to a common goal. So I guess that's kind of what it means to be an Oxford yellow jacket on the baseball field. I've gotten the title of director of football operations and I speak to our football team on a weekly basis and you know, they'll come up with what it means to, to be an Oxford Yellow Jacket football player. But, uh, and, and we got a good tight, tight core group of coaches here, and everybody uh, serves one another. And it's just an awesome place to be. Our football team had an undefeated regular season. Our basketball team made it to the final eight. Our baseball team was 29 and 13. Our wrestling team won a state championship. And, and, and our softball team, you know, just made it to the Elite Eight. So it's just a great time, a great place to be. And, and I'm just excited. There's not another high school baseball job that I, that I would want. Our high school baseball field just won National High School Baseball Field of the Year by the Baseball Coaches Association. And um, it's just two years old, and it is just an unbelievable place to play. It gets you in a good mood. Uh, even if you lose on the scoreboard, you walk away and you just feel good about what you just played on and where, and where you just played at. So I'm, just, I'm excited about where I am, but obviously you don't want to get complacent and plateau out. You want to obviously keep climbing that mountain of success. And that's just, that's what life's all about is, is keep trying to get better. Absolutely. Congratulations <clears throat> on the field of the year. I didn't know that you guys won that. Yeah, that was uh, something, uh, it's the baseball coaches association and, and they meet in early December and it's mainly just high school baseball coaches. The ABCA is the American baseball coach association, which is you know, obviously high school, college, pro, and, and about, th- you know, 3,000 to 5,000 members. Um, but the BCA is is mainly just high school coaches that kind of, uh, it sounds kind of like what you're trying to do with this podcast, you know, talk to other high school coaches and see, you know, the grind of their their day, their week, their, their month, their year, um, as opposed to maybe a college coach that can go out and recruit guys, still kind of develop a little bit, but but mainly kind of go out and pick your style of player. Whereas we get what we get and we got to make the best of it. And I think that's what makes high school baseball coaches and high school coaches in itself just so fun because you can take a, an eighth grader that can't even walk and chew gum. And all of a sudden he's doing a, you know, diving to his backhand and, and doing a spin and throwing a guy out at first or whatever. And, you know, just, just awesome to see guys grow and develop. And then, 
and you know you just got a special bond with that player uh he spends four years with you at the high school level and maybe goes on and plays minor league ball or a big time d1 and you know, you just, for some reason, you just got that quiet, silent, special bond with your high school coach and, and your high school players. So I think that's what's neat about it. Take us through what you guys do in the fall. What does a typical week look like for you guys? I'll, I'll kind of uh, go an overview first, you know, kind of like whole part whole. And uh, and then you can kind of grab and see what you want me to speak more about. I've sure. got jotted, jotted a, stuff, a lot of stuff down here. But in the fall, when we start school in the fall, we kind of preach that's kind of your downtime as far as our arm guys. There's a few guys to throw into September and October that, that might do some, uh, some showcases or some fall camps. But we kind of – and we treat each kid individually. There, there are some kids that, uh, that are playing in the fall, and then there are some kids that finish up in, in the summer. But we try to preach overall strength. There's so much you can gain from just being a stronger person. So we try to put on some weight. We try to look at our eating habits and our nutrition. Each kid's got their own plan. You know, you might have one or two guys that might need to trim down a little bit, but for the most part, you know, we're dealing with 140, 160 pound guys that don't have the legs that an SEC, you know, outfielder has or whatever. So, you know, we try to get the guys to buy into overall strength. We do two days of of speed, and and what that means is. We try to do something as fast as we can do it, whether it's uh, upper body or lower body. Whatever weight we do, we're trying to do it as fast as we can do it. And then the last two days of the week on Thursday and Friday, we'll do two days of max effort uh, because you're, you're, you stimulate your nervous system when you do a max effort lift because we believe that on a baseball swing, uh, you obviously want to swing. You know, if you're a, a a bat speed of 100 or 95 or whatever, well, when you swing a bat, you want to swing at 95 or 100. Over time, if you don't do those max effort lifts, your central nervous system kind of forgets what 100% is, and you might be swinging at 85% uh, when your team needs you to be at 100%. So we try to do strength, speed, speed, strength, and then overall max effort lifts, you know, two days a week on speed and two days a week on max effort with upper body and lower body. And that's a lot of Louis Simmons stuff that we've kind of researched over the last uh, couple of years, uh, just about getting stronger. And, and, and we try to, you know, uh, put on some weight of guys who need weight. You know, we'll make them eat five times a day, set their alarm clocks at two or three in the morning and drink that protein shake. And guys who really buy into it, they do. They'll put on 15 pounds in an off season, which is the ultimate goal for those two or three months that they're kind of winding down their summer fall ball and kind of getting ready to to start up training for the for the season. So a typical day, our guys get here at 645. We do our warm-up, and we do some type of hip every day. We do some uh, some hurdles. Uh, we might do some some boxes, some some duck walks just to warm up. And then, then we'll head up to the weight room, and we'll spend about 45 minutes in there doing our two days of speed, two days of max effort. We'll get a guest speaker in on Wednesday mornings. It's kind of an off day. And, and the guest speaker ranges from – a leader in the community, uh, maybe an FCA guy, or maybe the youth uh, pastor at the church, or it could be a board office member that maybe played at Oxford baseball for 20 years ago and what it means to wear that black and gold. And so that's been a really good thing on uh, on Wednesdays. And obviously Friday nights, we got a student section. We try to try to be the leaders of our student section for our football team. And Saturday's kind of an off day away from us. And one Sunday out of the month, we try to do a little Sunday social, whether it's watching the World Series game or 
some kind of primetime NFL football game and, you know, just play some cornhole and some cards and horseshoes or whatever, just kind of, you know, to get a, get a little closer bond with each other, the, the guys who are just uh, baseball-only guys. Then we'll move into uh, November, which is our tryouts. We, we have four teams. We've got a middle school. We've got a, uh, a seventh-grade team only, an eighth-grade team only, a JV and varsity. Of course, and then mainly our guys that have already been on the team, that they're the ones that are kind of with us in the weight room. So any armed guys, we shut them down off the mound about eight weeks in advance before tryouts. So we'll give them eight weeks of nothing but band work. We'll hit the bands hard and then, uh, I'm sorry, four weeks of bands and then four weeks of long toss and then we got tryouts. And if a guy threw into September or October, then his eight weeks will start whenever he shuts down off the mound. You know, and I encourage our guys to continue to play positions, you know, whether it's shortstop, he might make one max effort uh, throw across the diamond or an outfielder might make one max effort throw. But but research shows and Dr. Andrews shows that your your arm needs, you know, eight to, to 10 to 12 weeks of, of downtime as far as being an arm on the mound. But as far as a position player, we encourage those guys to keep working. Also, during that three-month period, our state has just implemented the five-on-one each athlete can get two hours a week in a five-on-one session with their coach. It can only be one coach. So a lot of times I'll go right after school with our defensive guys, and I'll go from like 3 to 3.30, 3.45, and then our hitting coach will, will come. And when he shows up and I go off the field and I start cutting grass elsewhere, and he'll work with the hitters for 30 to 45 minutes. And we do that two to three days a week, and that helps out a lot so that you're not cramming right in, right at the beginning of the season. The first three weeks of preseason practice, it helps a lot so that you don't try to feel like that you're just trying to get in everything right before you play. So that's good that our State Athletic Association and our, and our coaches committee decided to do that. So we roll into tryouts. Uh, this year we had about 63 guys uh, in our program, and that's for four teams. And then – Shortly after tryouts, we'll have a camp out. Our guys have just done, it started probably in 2009, and it has just gotten bigger and better each year. We obviously grill out for them. They'll play a game of capture the flag, and it'll last like three hours, and they divide up in teams. And when we divide up our teams, these are, these are our competing teams as far as inter-squad and practice and cleanup duties and all that. So it's kind of like a draft. Uh, you don't know whether you're drafting a guy to play capture the flag or you don't know if you're drafting a guy to flip tires, you know, after practice one day. So it's kind of neat on how they pick it. We kind of do it like a fantasy football draft. And guys get to pick their team. They get to pick the name of their own team that night. And uh, usually we reveal our team one-word focus for the year around the campfire. Uh, this is usually around that first week of December. The last two years it's kind of – worked out that it's on Heisman Trophy night. Uh, when they announced the Heisman Trophy, everybody kind of knows, hey, that's our camp out night because it's shortly after tryouts or the week of Thanksgiving or the week before. So um, everybody kind of gets excited about that. And uh, our individual players, they reveal their one word focus. And everybody kind of talks about why they chose that word and what that word means to them. So now we're uh, in December, we're coming back from Thanksgiving, and our players just, I don't know, since 2007, uh, we've met at 5.45 in the morning uh, on Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays. And we started in 2007 with a lot of Ron Warforth Texas Baseball Ranch training as far as med balls, armbands, ropes, 
you name it. Uh, and, and we, you know, and each year we try to break the monotony out of it and do something new to keep things fresh. And over the last couple of years, we've, uh, we've moved into the driveline, uh, with, uh, with Kyle and those guys, uh, out at driveline, we've kind of, you know, kept some of the stuff that we like from Ron Wolf or Texas baseball ranch and, uh, moved over into what Kyle Bodie is doing up there at, uh, at driveline. And we do those Monday, Wednesday, and Friday in the morning at five forty-five for about five or six weeks until we get out for Christmas. And, and believe it or not, we, we have about 99% participation out of all of our guys. You know, uh, some coaches think, you know, how do you get your guys to get there at 545 in the morning? It's just something that they start asking about uh, in October. Uh, they'll start saying, Coach, when are we going to start up our 545s? And I'll say, after tryouts, after our uh, camp out, we'll start them. And uh, they show up. Then we got Christmas holidays. We have we usually go two to three days a week based upon when Christmas and New Year's, Eve, New Year's falls on. And then our first uh, week of throwing is usually the first week in January. It's about the time we come back from the ABCA conference. And we are allowed to work with our pitchers and catchers during that throwing period. Each Wednesday during that throwing period, we have a, uh, a thing that we call the Montgomery Challenge. And that's just an obstacle course that our guys uh, compete against each other uh, with the teams that they pick back at the camp out night. And uh, then we start keeping score. Um, of just some little things leading up to our first week of practice. And then the last Wednesday in January, I got this from uh, Butch Chafin at Cookville High School in, uh, in uh, Tennessee. And uh, we call it the Anvil. And the Anvil is kind of like an individual obstacle course. And we've had a running total over the last four years of who the winner is and what time he's uh, had and the, uh, the Montgomery Challenge is more of a team-oriented thing with a little bit of individual competition, but the Anvil is more of a individual thing with some also some team uh, rewards as well. Um, we have 21 different events simulating 21 outs in a game. Some are hard. Some are easy. For example, the first one might be run two miles. The second one might be 100 jumping jacks. The third one might be a tire push or a car push or tire flip. And then the next one might be, you know, a hundred pushups or whatever. So, um, our diamond dolls, our parents, it's kind of a big deal. It's all over campus. Uh, we got some team managers. We, we set up three cameras and we film that. And that's kind of a day to where we, we finish, we start at home plate. We finish at home plate. After we finish, we go inside with our team folders and we get out our goal list and each kid folds up their goals for the year. We dig up home plate and we bury our goals for the year under home plate. And obviously at the end of the year, you know, our guys can't wait to see what they wrote down that they would like to accomplish based upon what they actually accomplished uh, during the season. So then we roll into our actual practice. Uh, it's unbelievable how our first three weeks go. Um, if you come by our practice, it's just a lot of energy. Uh, it's organized. Uh, the kids own practice. I preach that. I got this from Brian Kane. Obviously, uh, know it, uh, do it, and own it. Uh, obviously, we want our guys to know it, and obviously, they need to do it. But then, when they own it, it actually makes practice fun. We do a midnight madness before the first day of practice, and at 12 a.m. on on midnight uh, madness, our guys get to take BP on the field because that's kind of like the first day that you're allowed to hit. 
So we meet up here at 9 p.m. at the field house, and we go over our offensive philosophy, our defensive philosophy, what we're trying to do on the mound with pitchers and catchers, what we're trying to do base running for the year, so that all of our coaches and all of our players are on the same page as far as our philosophy. And then when we feed them pizza, and then when midnight gets here, we go out on the field, cut the infield lights on, and each kid gets their five cuts, and they go home, and we let them sleep in as far as lifting weights the next morning. And then obviously we have three weeks of practice, then our season starts. Uh, we are fortunate enough to to play on a brand new $40 million complex that our city started thinking about, I guess, in 2005. It was kind of a vision. We had some bumps in the road in 2010 and in, in uh, 2015. Uh, obviously, 2016 season was our first home game at the park, and it was just an unbelievable experience and still is. It's you know, it's better than most minor league parks, and we're just blessed to, to have that field. It's called Chakalaka Park, and we're just best uh, blessed to, to play at the signature field there, signature baseball field. And that has a name of itself, too. It's called the Big House, and that's kind of a, a name that uh, what Chakalaka means uh, to the Indian tribe that settled there years back. Uh, Chakalaka means almost like where a town meeting happens, and so that's where we got the name the Big House from. So that's pretty neat. We used to travel during spring break, but obviously having the facility that we have, we kind of bring bring teams in from all over the country. Uh, looking forward to that next year and in the process of scheduling it now. And, you know, once, once our season's over, then uh, we get back in the grind with our summer workouts starting in June. Uh, we have our play dates. Mondays and Fridays, we call them stud days. Those are extra workout days. You don't have to come if you don't want to, but but I'd say 80% of the guys show up anyways. Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday are, are kind of our mandatory workouts, and we get back. Some of, some guys still play in the summer, so we kind of still keep our in-season workout going, and some guys don't, so they'll start their off-season workout. And on Tuesdays, uh, after the weight room, we'll meet with our uh, infielders and get on the field and do some work. And on Wednesdays, we'll meet with our catchers. And on Thursdays, we'll meet with our outfielders and corner guys and go over about 20 to 30 minutes of defensive work. And our hitting coach will hit with our guys uh, one day a week. And then if you're, a, we call it the top 12. If you're in the top 12, then you get a two-day-a-week lesson with him. And uh, we play a little bit during the summer with our state. Uh, we can play the three out of three, first three out of the four weeks in June. So we get as many games as we want to there, just for us, like what we're going to get next year. And, and then we start school again in August. So that's kind of a, a year-long thing. I probably skipped over a few things. Um, but if you, uh, if you want me to go more in-depth on any of the things that I just talked about, feel free, and I'd be more than happy to do so. So it sounds like you guys are extremely intentional about spending time together. Is that accurate? Uh, yeah, yeah. We uh, we try to do a lot of things of, of team building and, and character building and leadership. And, and you know, when I first started coaching 10, 12 years ago, you know, I, I, obviously this wasn't a focus of mine at all. But over the years and a little more wisdom here and there, you understand that it's about building building the man how can how can we become better men and if we can become better men i know that i'm going to get a better baseball player as a byproduct of that i love that and they're going to be men a lot longer than they're going to be just baseball players yes they're going to spend four years with us and they're going to spend 60 years in life so uh, those four years with us are very precious and we just hope that uh you know they're not gonna remember 50 years from now about 
you know, about winning a championship. They're going to 50 years from now, they're going to remember about what it means to, to get knocked down and get back up when you, when you start dealing with adversity. And, and so we kind of hope we teach them some life lessons that they can uh, carry on with them 10 years down the road when they wake up and their wife's sick and their kids are sick and, and the other kids got to get to school and you're taking care of everybody and you've got to get to work. And, you know, so, so we kind of talk and, and preach a lot about those things because those are things that they're going to carry with them uh, the rest of their life. You know, they're not going to necessarily be able to do that backhand when they're 55 years old, although some might, but you know, for the most part, they're not going to be able to, to do those things that they do on the field as far as physically. But that team, that team, uh, team meeting, the first 20 minutes getting into, uh, and then the practice is uh, is very special to us. It's a very special place to all sports, and and we we hang our hat on that as far as uh, being an Oxford Yellow Jacket. It's very important to meet and talk and open up to one another and just kind of be close, a close knit group. So is that all sports that you meet twenty minutes before, or is that just the <clears throat> baseball team? You know, it it was called the team room back in two thousand seven. And it was kind of mainly for our, our football team, and and I was a part of the football staff, and and uh, you know we dress in the field house, you know, just like the football team. Our basketball team dresses up in the sports arena, so they're not always down there with us. But but this year, they started combining with all three uh, of your big three sports: football, baseball, and basketball. We started combining on Wednesdays and and doing a devotional or an FCA or some kind of leadership. Uh, talk and that's been great but it's just a place where you know we got our core values posted on the wall and you know it's just kind of a, a place where you come and and serve one another you know we, we and the topic this year in the fall was servanthood and how we can help the guy beside us get better so we just think that's important you know we think it's better very important to win in the locker room first and and that'll have a, a good carryover onto the field Definitely. So you mentioned earlier about the obstacle course and the anvil challenge. Uh, you see a lot of coaches today that are talking about how their kids aren't very competitive anymore or they weren't as competitive as they were in the old days. And so what is a way that you integrate competition in just everyday practices? I, I think our coaching staff has put our minds together. You know, just just talking to college coaches across the country, they deal with this too. So you know, we, we try to go and visit as many, many coaches as we can and get ideas. And, you know, we kind of put our own spin to it. And, and that's the thing, you know, no matter whatever you come up with or, you know, you got to, you got to bring it across to your kids like, Hey, our coach made that up and, or our team made that up. And it kind of becomes a special thing. So each year we got a few things, but the last two years has been, has been unbelievable as far as competing. You're probably going to laugh when I, when I say this, but we divide up in two teams, and before we come to the team meeting, one team cleans the locker room and the foyer in the field house, and the other team cleans the team room and the bathroom. And they get five minutes to do this, and there's about 20 guys on each team. So when we finish the team meeting and head out to practice, I've got two coaches that walk back in, and when we get to the practice field, one team is up or down, one to zero based upon how well they clean. And that's just part of it, you know, paying attention to detail, whether it's uh, the tissue on the in the bathroom or whether it's a bubblegum wrapper uh, up under somebody's chair in the team room. It is just, you know, paying attention to detail, just like getting a sight bunt down in the sixth inning when you need it. You know, a guy's going to pay attention to detail. 
Um, so that's kind of, you know, and obviously a life lesson thing is, you know, just keep, keep your, uh, just like the all black saying, uh, you know, sweep the shed, no matter if you win the championship or lose by 10 runs, you know, before you leave, you're going to sweep the shed. So that's been a pretty cool thing. Our guys have enjoyed the last couple of years. Um, so we get out to practice and, and during the day before fifth period starts, I give our team captains a practice schedule. And there's five things that we're going to compete on that's not necessarily on the field. And and one of the things is pre-practice setup. So one team's got to get this bucket of balls here in right field. The other team's got to get the pitching machine out to the pitcher's mound. The other team's setting up a bunt station. The other team might be setting up cones or whatever. And then so we got two coaches judging on how well the pre-practice setup was. And there's no ties. If there is a tie, then then we kind of come up with something right there to settle it. It might be, you know, some some kind of uh, competitive drill or just run the sixty or whatever. All right, so so you could be up two nothing, one one, or down o two right here. Okay, so we go into our our pre practice warm up and stretches. I don't tell our team captains what they have to do. They come up with their own way to stretch. If they want to do dynamic warm up, if they want to run two poles, if they want to uh, circle up and stretch, if they want to I don't know, whatever, kind of make some kind of clap or noise or whatever. It's totally up to them. So I got two coaches that, that decide on who wins that. So now you're talking, you know, it might be three to one or, or two to two or whatever. And, you know, we keep it clean. They, they can, I, I don't want them to talk trash and kind of, you know, do things the wrong way. I kind of want it to be more encouragement for their own team to be the best that they can possibly be for their team. So once that happens, now we go into our drills. And this is could be a drill series. And, and while we're in drill series, we're not necessarily competing. We're actually learning, whether it's field and ground balls, you know, fence balls for outfielders, uh, blocking balls for catchers, kind of our defensive uh, drill series. And then we move into MVP. And uh, we call that Montgomery batting practice. That's where our state finals uh, is located in Montgomery, hence the name Montgomery Challenge as well similar to the Omaha challenge that Vanderbilt and a lot of colleges do, but we call it Montgomery batting practice. And it, this is one thing that has changed the way we practice and it's affected our, affected us on game day in a positive way. Um, so many things are going on. It requires a lot of coaches and a lot of managers and a lot of stopwatches. Um, I'll just kind of give you a quick rundown. And if you want to go a little bit more in depth here in a little bit, I'll do it. But we got this from Mississippi state went over and talked with coach Cohen and Butch Thompson two years ago when Butch was still at Mississippi State and spent the day with those guys. And it was just unbelievable how a well-oiled machine it looked like. And I said, man, I've got to learn this for our team. And, and the first time when we put it in, man, our players struggled at it, and it was like pulling teeth. But the very, sec- the very second time that, that, uh, that we did the MVP, it was unbelievable and has been ever since. But just kind of give you an idea, there's so many things going on. So – so during the morning, I'll text my hitting coach and I'll say, give me four categories that you want your hitters to do at practice today. And, and two of them has to be somewhat of ground ball drills and two of them has to be, you know, obviously power pulls or opposite field gap or whatever he wants to work on as, as some balls to get hit to your outfielders. So he'll say, you know, hit and run, which, you know, you're trying to hit a ground ball. And then he might say ground ball right side, or he might do two-strike drill, or he might do uh, just power ground balls in general for the two ground ball categories. In the fly ball categories, it might be score them infielding in or, or runner on third less than two outs, or it might be, you know, three one two zero oh counts. It might be power pulls. 
opposite field gap, whatever he wants it to be. So the hitters are being graded on that they get 16 cuts during this MVP. And that's not all their batting practice for the day. It's just for this, this individual drill. So they get 16 cuts, and we've got a, a manager on the side that's grading all 16. And our hitting coach is actually pitching, and he's just saying yes, no, based upon the, do they get it right or do they not get it right as far as uh, whatever they're trying to do. So our our catchers are obviously there. Our, our, our hitting coach knows to every four pitches he's got to throw one dirt ball. Or every four pitches, you know, he throws a ball to see if we're sticking balls or framing balls or how we're receiving. And we got a we got a catching coach that's grading him on dirt balls or, or whatever the drill is for him. Our first baseman, we got one guy covering first, and we got one guy playing back deep. Um, we got two second basemen. The second baseman that's closest to the second base bag, he's turning a double play under 4.4 seconds or 4.1 or 4.3 or whatever we decide that day. The second baseman that's furthest away from second base, he's fielding all balls right, hit right at him to his left. The first baseman that's playing back deep, he's fielding all balls right at him or to his right or down the line. We've got a pitcher on the front of the mound that's doing a right side get over every time that ball is hit to that right side. And the pitcher, there's another pitcher that's actually on the pitcher's plate that every time the ball hits the L screen, He's playing a comebacker and turning that double play to, to second base. So he's got to communicate that with his two middle guys that are closest to the bag. Your shortstop that's close to second base, he's turning all double plays. Your, there's another shortstop that's in the 5-6 hole, and every ball hit right at him to his right. We, we change this up. Some days we'll do uh, throwovers under 4.5. Some days we'll do all backhand communication and throw it to your third baseman for that runner on first and second, force out at third when he's got to go deep in the hole and he can't throw the guy out at first. You got a third baseman that's up in the grass and, uh, you know, maybe one step up in the grass playing those hard hit balls he's got to knock down. And then another third baseman back deep that's playing every backhand or every ball that gets by the third baseman's right side or catching line drives. Your outfielders are, are having are they're having to make catches on the run, web gems, get to the ground ball in four seconds. I'm trying to think if there's another category for our outfielders. So so all this is kept up on scores. We got some flip charts that are from zero to nine or from zero to ninety-nine. And we've got about eight or ten managers there that are flipping charts. My, I, I got two stopwatches in my hand. Every time a ball is hit, I'm hitting both stopwatches. One for the infielders, one for the right side get over, one for the double play, one for the comebacker. Just so much stuff is going on during this time. So along with our hitters, what they've got to accomplish with their 16 cuts each, and let's say you got 30 guys, 30 guys times 16, you know, ever how many cuts that is, you know, let's say it's 400 cuts. So I'll sit here and say, well, out of 400 cuts, our infielders should turn 32 double plays. And we tinker and play with this based upon what we think our skill level is, what obviously Mississippi State set their standard at, and and what we're, you know, as far as our arms tired, or is our arm, are we fresh? So we'll say, okay, our, our middle infielders and our third baseman, no, I take that back, our middle infielders will have to turn 32 double plays. Our pitcher, uh, first baseman, and second baseman has to do 22 right side getovers. The pitcher on the pitcher's plate, when it hits the L screen, he does a comebacker, and he's got to turn a double play with the two middle guys, and we've got to do 19 of those. 
our third baseman that's playing up, our, our shortstop that's playing in the hole, and our second baseman that's playing in the 3-4 hole, they've got to just field the routine ground ball and get it over to first base in 4.4 seconds, and they got to do 40 of those. All infielders combined have got to catch 18 line drives. So all this, all these categories are on flip charts, and we've got them named with index cards and written in big capital letters. Like one says line drive, the other says ground ball, the other one says comebacker, the other one says right side get over. All right, so our little managers, we're having to coach our managers up about two weeks before practice starts because there's yeah, so no much, kidding. there's so much stuff. And now, now they got the hang of it, and they're two years into it. So during the fall. We had a we had a manager this year that was his name was Anthony Green. He was a sophomore this year. He hired himself three guys in the fall. And when January got here, he would ha- he had a PowerPoint and he was giving them a test in the <laughs> in the lower team room while our upper team room we were meeting. So and look, we get those guys spirit packs. We let them dress out on game day. They film for us. I mean, we love them up. They're so valuable to our team and. You know, I used to think, you know, we can't get any managers out, but I got to promote that to start working on that in the fall, and we've done a good job of that. Yeah, I need to see those guys graduate. Oh yeah, so they just they just know that they got to train the next guy. Oh, so, nice. um, so our outfielders are, you know, they've got to get uh, 18 catch on the runs. We've got to get six web gems. We've got to get 20 get to it in four seconds or less. You know, that's you know trying to cut a guy from taking making a single into a double. Just so many things are going on. Okay, and and. On top of that, we got to be organized to make sure that our right field slash shortstop slash catcher gets work at all three places. So we got like five hitting groups group one rotation, group two rotation, group three rotation, group four, group five. So during our midnight madness, you know what group you're in, you know what your rotation is. So you know if you're hitting, if you're an arm on the mound, you go to the mound. If you're a position guy, you know when you're going on what rotation. So in between each rotation, and our coaches have gotten much, gotten much better. It takes about 30 seconds now. In between each rotation, we call out, okay, we've got, we've got to get 21 more ground balls. We've got to get uh, seven more line drive call, you know, and we, we name out all the categories, which is about 15 categories that we're keeping. And our hitting coach, it's so much information for him. He just says, hey, we need to pick it up on two strikes or we need to pick it up on hit and runs or whatever. It's just hard to tell. So at the end of all five rotations, our guys know that ever how many were short, that's how many 60-yard sprints we got before we move on to our inner squad. So let's say out of all of the categories we kept up, let's say they're, they're 19 short. Well, what I, I do right there, I try to give them a chance to win those 19 back, and I'll hit nine, I'll just say all infielders go to their, their position, or I'll just make up some – some kind of short drill, you know, outfield catch on the runs or whatever, and I'll just hit 19 slow rollers, and they've got to throw those guys out in 4.2 or less. And usually, most of the time, they'll get about half of those, you know, as far as when you have to stopwatch on them. And, and so we would go out, go out and run, you know, our 12, you know, 60-yard sprints, and then our pitchers would get loose. So we move into our inner squad. And, and, and now you go back to, you know, what was the score before we started our – Drill series and our MVP. Oh, it's three to two black team or three to two gold team. Well, now we have our process based scrimmage. And this, it used to be um, more than one point, but now just the whole process based scrimmage. And we got this from Brian Kane, and it is unbelievable. This is another thing that has made our practice and made our game day 
operations just 10 times better. So that's one total point. Then our situational game is one total point. And the overall score in the game is one total point. I know we talk about the process and winning every pitch, but at the end of the day, you know, I want our guys to know what it means. The, the two outs, runner on second, game's tied, last inning. We got we got to find a way to get that run in, or we got to find a way to dive and catch that ground ball and keep that run from scoring. So we try to finish the day on that. And and let's say you know one team's up four to two. There's always one surprise at practice that is worth two points. And they don't know what that surprise is. It could be when somebody comes up to watch us practice. It could be going and checking their hand. It's, it could be, you know, putting the tarp on the pitcher's mound afterwards and or not having any trash on the fence line, whatever. But we as coaches, you know, I'll text them during the day and I'll say, hey, today's surprise is, uh, you know, how clean the third base dugout is or, or whatever before we leave. Okay, so – so one team wins and one team loses out of all those competitions that we did all day. So the losing team has 10 60-yard sprints. The winning team has post-practice cleanup. So two coaches are out there watching the sprints. Two coaches are inside watching in the dugouts and in the shed, you know, watching them do pre-practice or post-practice cleanup. So when, when we break it down, we do circle of life on the pitcher's mound. Our, uh, our FCA guy, you know, kind of sends us off to practice. We'll get a breakdown, and our coaches come together, and I'll say, all right, coaches, how'd they do on the sprints? And, and the two coaches will say, coach, they got after it. They sprinted uh, like uh, they don't want to go home early in early rounds in the playoffs. And I'll say, okay, how'd they clean up? And just say, hey, they didn't do a good, a good, good job of cleaning up. They were complacent. They were satisfied that they won. Well, the sprints and the post-practice cleanup counts as a one point for the next day. So when we go to the team room the next day, somebody's already up one to nothing, down one to nothing as far as competing. So then you got guys thinking about competing all the time. And that's what that's what you want. You want to get a high school athlete. He might not have his best stuff on the mound today, but he's got to find a way to still compete and get the job done. You know, you might be at 75% today. But you've got to find a way to give us 100% of that 75% that you got on that day. And that just gets the guys mindset of competing. And three straight weeks of having to run 60-yard sprints or not and competing and everything, you know, it just creates a competitive environment that our guys really, really, really like. And I think that's important to the beginning of your season when you roll in your first 10 games. You know, some teams might start off slow. I think it has a lot to do with our our teams having a fast start over the past four or five years is because we do so much competing in everything that we do on opening day. If it's 22 degrees, uh, we're still going to go out there and compete no matter what the conditions are. So I guess that's pretty much uh, some things that I think that have made a difference in our team and individual development and what it looks like for for uh, team competition and practice and uh Anything else you think of, you let me know, and I'll kind of go as much in depth as I possibly can about it. I, I enjoy it. I hope you can probably tell by the way I'm getting fired up talking about it. <laughs> no, coach, that's absolutely unbelievable. I love that explanation of the of your BP. Yes, and I I do have a couple of uh, questions about how to really teach it. So, do you assign each player's jobs beforehand or it yes. stay the same throughout the year? How does that work? Yes. Like, like in our team meeting or number one in our midnight madness, they know MVP is a big part of, of two or three days a week worth of practice. They just know it. 
we got to be careful about watching our arms. You know, like we got some guys who are dual players, you know, pitchers and position players, but they know how big of a part of that practice is, is knowing where your rotation is. So it's, it takes about a, about an hour and a half of sitting down and writing down every player and, and individually looking at that guy and making sure he gets his reps at first base, he gets his reps off the mound, he gets his reps in right field, and obviously he gets his reps at the plate. And whatever position is his primary position, the other two or three rotations is what he will go to. And we will have that printed off for them. So at the end of our team meeting, we will throw it up on the overhead screen in our projector in the team meeting room, and they'll look. So if I'm if I'm a shortstop only, I, I got it easy. I've got five rotations or four rotations of shortstop and and one time hitting. I just got to know when I'm when I'm the shortstop that's close to the bag and when I'm the shortstop in the hole. And man, if if you come to our practice on opening day of practice, it is just nuts. It is just all out. Just everybody's yelling, screaming, and and if you're just a bystander watching practice you probably have no idea what's going on but it is just controlled chaos really but it's so much fun and our guys love it and and when we you know let's just say you got you know 28 double plays when we turn a double play our guys go nuts because they know that's one less sprint they've got to run when we do that right side get over correct or when that catcher blocks the ball in the dirt or when that outfielder makes a catch on the run you know, and I've talked to all college coaches, and they tell me the only number one way you can get good on defense is playing the ball off the live bat. And instead of, you know, we can get up there and hit fungos all day long, or we can shoot balls in a pitch machine, fly balls to our outfielders, or, or we can tell the catcher you're blocking this ball to your right, but when you're actually out there getting live reps and getting coached up on the run and live reps, it is unbelievable. And get this now, we also have a manager that's filming all of this. So when we get home, we upload the film and then share it through Huddle and uh, our software to all the players. So if there's something great that happens or if there's a coaching moment, we go back and find it. We try to correct it in the team meeting the next day before we get out on the field. And it is, it takes a long time to put together. And we realized that the first year we started it. But once you do it, and then when we say the word MVP, the kids know their rotations. So it's not like we're, you know, every now and then we might move a guy up from the JV or the middle school team to come practice with us, and I'll just kind of take it easy on him. And I'll just say, hey, just play second base and hit, and you'll just catch up, you know. But it, it is it is really an unbelievable way that for us to get a, get a lot of live reps off the bat. Guys are flying around. There's no standing around. There's no such thing as shagging at Oxford High School Baseball. Shagging is not, if you're going to shag, then you go outside of the fence and you catch home run balls. Cause we've got outfielders out there that are going, trying to run through a fence, trying to catch a fly ball. So we just kind of taking the definition of the word shag and, and throwing it out. And you're just either a foul ball guy or a home run guy. And most of those, most of the time, those guys are, are guys that are injured. Uh, they can't really do anything in practice and they're, they're the ones, but everywhere else, our guys are just going 90 miles an hour. So, and then, uh, even more exciting than all that is our process-based scrimmage. This is something, obviously, we got from Brian Kane and my friend down the road at Hoover High School, Adam Mosley. He taught us the process-based scrimmage several years ago, and it is just unbelievable um, on what it's meant to our program. And it's kind of carried over on game day. We've got a process-based game game day, and we've got a process-based scrimmage. 
And uh, I can go into depth and more on that if you want to, or if you got some more things you want to talk about, uh, we can do that too. What happens whenever a kid messes up the uh, the batting practice? Like, say, a kid forgets something. What what is <laughs> what do the kids do? Because I'm guessing well, it's some sort of accountability there. Yeah, you know, uh, we got this big coach, Tom May. I mean, he looks like uh, he looks like he lives in the weight room. He, you know, he's an older guy. He's probably 60, 65 years old, and he's just all muscled up, and he's got a whistle at practice anytime we hear that whistle blown it's automatic 30 crunches no matter where you are uh body language is big in today's world body language is big in an interview body language is big when i'm up in front of the class teaching or giving a speech or whatever if i'm on the mound and i walk a guy or if i'm at the plate and i strike out looking we are big time believers that negative body language fuels the other team and it hurts your teammates Positive body language, uh, that other team's wondering, like, man, we're not even getting to him. That, you know, we just hit a leadoff triple, and that guy's acting like, you know, nothing happened. So, we're, and this is, these are things that we talk about in our team meetings. So, if a guy does something like, like, let's just say you do forget to go to your rotation, and we call you out, hey, John, how come you're not hitting? Well, if he sprints in and gets his helmet and gets up there to plate and hits, we're fine. But if he shows any kind of negative body language, our coach may, he blows the whistle. Everybody on the whole field does 30 crunches, 30 sit-ups. We, we want guys to do things the right way. You know, when we're scrimmaging or whatever and a guy gets called out and he was safe by two feet and he shows negative body language, or if a guy strikes out looking, he shows negative body language, or if a guy misses a ball, routine ground ball, he should, then we blow that whistle. And that kind of takes care of our negative body language. And, and that's all. And that's life, too. You know, if I if I have a bad morning, uh, let's just say I wake up late. My daughter forgets her homework. I got to go back home and get it. And all of a sudden I just kind of make it in the weight room just on time. And I'm all upset or whatever. I've got to fake it. I've got to go in there and show those kids. And I'm 100 percent bought in. I'm being where my feet are. And, and I'm and I'm making the best of that weight room. And those kids never know what type of morning I had. Well, that's the same thing as a player. That negative body language, you know, there's a time and place to, to release that negative emotion, but not on the baseball field because when you release that negative emotion and that other team sees that body language on the field in a negative way, it's, they're like wolves. They're ready to, you know, they're just kind of getting bigger and, 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 uh, and better. And then your own teammates, when they see that negative body language, they're like, man, that guy's beat, you know. So when a guy messes up at practice, they just get the whistle, and we do 30 crunches, and we keep on rolling. Oh, I love that. That's, that is absolutely hilarious. So every time you hear a whistle, man, they, I bet I can only imagine the eye rolls that you guys get. Oh, yeah. Like if we're over in the bullpen working on, you know, whatever, and a guy would throw a missed curveball in the dirt, he throws a hanging curveball, he shows negative body language. Oh, the guys in right field that are in the, bull, that are in the batting cage over there, they're like, golly, you know, they just hear the whistle blow. They don't have any idea. They just know somebody didn't do something that, that you know, and that, those are just kind of the soft skills that we try to teach, you know, uh, just being, just having a lot of energy, not showing any negative body language, you know, hustling on off the field is a biggie. Um, just some things that, that, that we believe here at Oxford, you know, that, you know, if a guy shows up with his shirt tail out or whatever, they're going to get the whistle. You know, if they're walking on and off the field, they're going to get the whistle. So, um, that's kind of something coach may he's, he's got that, uh, he's got a patent on that whistle he has on every practice. So oh, that's great. I love it. Coach may and I would, uh, get along just, <laughs> just fine. So tell us about the process scrimmage. Oh man, it is, uh, it, 
I keep saying all these things are unbelievable. Uh, I just get excited about talking about it because it has made a positive impact on the way we play the game. And I have probably had more comments from opposing coaches after we play. Hey, you know, we'll let's say we win a close one, five to three, and that coach will come up and shake our coach's hand and our players and say, hey, I enjoy playing you guys. I don't enjoy losing, but they say, you know, I enjoy playing you guys because we just enjoy watching you play. And I'm just going to – I've got a copy of it right in front. I'm just going to run it, run down through it. You know, obviously, Brian Kane had a lot to do with this, and Adam Mosley at Hoover, which is a really good friend of mine. We share ideas a lot. And, and of course, and then, of course, we spun it and did it our own. We called it um, um, our Oxford process scrimmage. You know, we got black and gold scorecards. But I'll just kind of get to the nuts and bolts. Um, okay, every half inning – and this is another thing where you need a lot of coaches and you need a lot of managers. And uh, so every half inning, uh, each team is is graded on on their energy, their dugout participation, and intent. And and, and I say intent like if it's if a guy checks swings, if, if everybody in the dugout says no, he didn't, or if everybody in the field say yes, he did, or you know if he's safe by half a step, everybody's saying say, and that's the intent. You know, uh, winning the one-one count, or you know, we we say treat th- treat two-two like three-two. You know, those are energy, high-level energy thing that have intent and participation. Not just come on, Johnny, and a couple claps. We got to be intentional about that. So one coach is just in the dugout paying attention to all that. Okay, our outfielders have to get off the field in nine seconds or less once the third out is made. So as soon as that third out is made, I got to stop watching my hand. And it's funny because when we first started this, we had guys diving over the rail into the dugout. And we kind of had to knock that because I felt like somebody was going to get hurt. But it was just unbelievable how our guys, you know, if you want to get good something, measure it. You know, a lot of coaches, you know, measurement equals motivation. If you're going to get good good at something or you want to get good at something, you got to measure it. So stopwatch is a great way, obviously, in baseball. Our infielders have got to get off the field in five seconds or less, and that's graded. And those, see, those two categories are worth three points. You might come to one of our scrimmages, and, and in the sixth inning, the score is 128 to 92, and you're like, what's going on? Well, we want every, we want every kid on our team to know that every single pitch matters. So we're totally focused on winning pitches instead of actually you know, the runs of the game, you know, because if you're down six to one and you think about that, you let that get in your head, you're going to feel like, you know, you're going to feel, but if you're like, if you just hustled off the field, uh, you had a lot of dugout energy and participation and, and whatever you score, you know, whatever this, you're like, heck yeah. And a lot of those things will add up and take care of the big things. So we just found a way to kind of, basically you're grading every single pitch. Now, now we got the defensive ready to play the situ- situational game in 60 seconds or less. If our pitcher goes out, throws his five one more pitches, our catcher throws it down, and all of our position players are ready in 60 seconds or less, then they get three points. Catcher in between innings, if he throws a 2-0 or better, his team gets two points. After a strikeout, if our guys throw it around in six seconds or less, we get three points. If we throw it around in five seconds or less after an out at first base, that's three points. And I know you're thinking, wow, there's so much stuff to keep up with. This is on five categories of about 30. But every coach knows his five categories that he's keeping up the whole day. So I'm just looking on my sheet. I've got the outfielders off the field, the defensive ready to play, the throw down by the catcher, 
around the horn after a strikeout. So I've got those four categories myself as a head coach. When a foul ball's hit, our guys have to sprint out of the dugout like their hair's on fire going to get that foul ball. That's worth two points. So if you're at practice and you're down 80 to 70 and a guy's at bat and he's a right-hander and he fouls off four balls to the right to the first base side, whoever's in that first base dugout has a chance to tie it up just by going to get in that foul ball. And that's just part of the keeping the energy level high in the dugout, you know, instead of just guys just leaning on the rail, not doing anything. On deck hitter, this is something we've had fun with uh, over the last couple of years. The on deck hitter gets that foul ball that hits the net. He, If he catches it, he has to hand it to the umpire. We don't toss it to him. If he puts it in the umpire's pocket, that's double points. If he catches it off the net, that's triple points. So this is something our own players have kind of had fun with over the last couple of years. So oh, if I'm good. And, and you know, and I'll tell you what, umpires love to come call our games because we're so fast paced. We can play a complete game in like an hour, an hour and a half, and they're like wanting to call us again. So all this is, and all this is the pace of game. This is the the big uh, category is the pace of game. All right. So the catcher hustle and backs up throw behind first, um, and that's kind of based upon the catching coach if he feels like he hustled. Uh, to back up that throw, then he'll get points. And then on his way back, if he fist pumps, then that's bonus. So, like, you know, basically if he beats the batter to first base, then on his way back to home plate, he fist pumps. That's double points. All pitches thrown under 12 seconds or less. This is something that we added in our program about three years ago. It starts on day one of your bullpens. you got to have one guy charting your bullpens, and you got to have one guy keeping the 12-second clock. As soon as he starts his wind-up, then we stop the clock. And if it says like 11.4, then we get a check mark. Anytime, And it, it just doesn't give that hitter time to think. You know, we miss with a fastball in. We're probably going to come with an off-speed away. If, as long as you keep up that tempo, hitters don't like you working fast. They can't get comfortable in the box. They call time. So I'm going to shift from the process game and go to our decal game right here on this, on this uh, category. Go ahead. All pitches thrown under 12 seconds or less. We also have a decal chart in which we get O's to put on our helmet, kind of like a football team. And if any time the batter calls time because we're working so fast, normally that upsets a pitcher and he's mad because that guy stepped out. Well, when any time we make the batter call time because we're working so fast, we get an O sticker. So that's kind of taking something negative and turning into a positive for our pitcher. He'll look in the dugout and he'll say, Coach, that's a, that's a decal. So that's pretty neat right there. Okay, anytime the batter and the umpire calls time because we're working so fast, that's two decal stickers. So, and that's just called our tempo. And we can control our tempo. You know, if a team starts rallying, we can slow the game down. I call it the Gus Malzahn of, of baseball. You know, we're out there working so fast, making the team uncomfortable. You know, we're out there, work, we're playing at a different level than anybody that we play. As long as these 12 seconds and, – and now your outfielder doesn't get bored out there because your pitcher's taking 25 seconds in between each pitches, and it's cold. So we're working fast. We're keeping our juices flowing, and uh, that's just something we kind of put our own spin on right there. Okay, now, so that's the pace of the game, and that's our process-based scrimmage pace of the game. Those are the only categories that we actually transfer over on game day, and we keep in a live setting. So our coach – Coach Peavy was our process scorer, and we bring a dry race board, and we got the process score in the dugout. So we've got our overall record. You know, it might have been against Hoover two years ago in the Hoover Spring Break Tournament, and it's got the date beside it. 
And then it's also got the inning in which we in which we had the highest process points in an inning. You know, the overall game was like 167 two years ago, and then the overall inning might have been 40, you know, based upon all these things that happened. We threw in another category this past year. Um, we call it the Kevin Garnett rule. In the second, fourth, and the sixth inning, when our guys come off the field, everybody in the dugout either high fives, chest bumps, or butt slaps everybody on the team. If we get three up, three down, we chest bump. If we get a, you know, if we get a shutdown inning or they don't score, then we high five. And then if it's just a normal inning, we we just butt slap. But everybody has to touch everybody, you know. And that's just another thing, you know. Like let's just say, you know, we're sprinting off the field and we gave up one run, okay? Well, most teams are coming in upset. Well, our guys are coming in in the in the, in the even innings in every extra inning, you know. So like. They come off the field and we're high five and whatever. And everybody's like, what's going on? Everybody's out of the dugout. It's just another way to create some energy to kind of get some juices flowing, you know, pick somebody up or whatever. So we call that the Kevin Garnett rule. The reason why we call it the Kevin Garnett rule is because there was an NCAA research guy that tried to research of teams that communicated and touched each other during timeouts in the NBA. So you call a timeout and you, you give high fives or, a guy hits a free throw or misses a free throw and everybody comes and touches the guy that's shooting it. The team that touched each other the most uh, won the NBA Finals that year, and the player that touched everybody the most was Kevin Garnett, and he was MVP of the year that year. So that's kind of some research that we kind of threw into our game, um, and that's our that's our Kevin Garnett rule. So that's that's pretty neat. All right, so I'm going to move, move over to pitchers. It's win the 1-1 count. First pitch thrown for a strike, no freebies, a 1-2-3 inning, 12 pitches or less, 3-2 battle, or four batters or less. And our pitching coach is keeping up with this on our scrimmage day, but on game day, he keeps up with this after the game based upon our pitching charts. Just too much to keep up with all that on game day, actually, during live time. On our defense, this is kept up during inter-squad only, not on game day, but we do keep up based upon film after the game. Any web gem is two points. Every defensive throw is backed up two points. Any double play that we turn is four points. Throwing the lead runner out from an outfielder is four points. Anytime we pick somebody off is two points. And anytime we hustle as an outfielder to keep a runner from advancing is two points. This is all done in the process-based scrimmage. It's not kept up with on game day. Just the pace of the game is kept up with on game day as far as our records. And then our offensive categories – there in scrimmage day is freebies, bunt base hit, aggressive base running, quality at bats, lead off or two out walk or hit by pitch, an eight pitcher bat or a two out RBI. And those have two points, three points or whatever. So that's all of our process based scrimmage categories. So you've got a process score and then the first batter of each inning is bunting a guy over sack bunt, nobody out runner on first. He's bunting him over and we score that. So that's called the situational game, and the actual final score of the game might be four to two, and we actually get one point for that. So your process score might be 120 to 90, your situational score might be 15 to 12, and your actual score of the actual inter-squad game might be four to two. Well, five years ago, we would leave thinking the black team played better today because they won four to two. But if you actually keep up with all this stuff and you see the sheets and the check marks. Now you can actually get a lot of coaching done in that team meeting the next day. And the process-based scrimmage kind of tells the story 
of how practice went yesterday. So as a head coach, I can look at that one sheet of paper when it, when they when all of my coaches combine and give it to me at night. I'll go home and I'll tally it up, and I'll say, man, we we need to work on our base running. Our outfitters need some more work on balls on the run. Uh, we need more work on our pickoffs. Uh, the goal team didn't have any energy in the last two innings. Um, and all this stuff is so much information that 10 years ago, I'm thinking, man, there's no way we can keep up with this. But as long as it's organized and everybody knows what they're doing, you can get the most out of practice during your MVP, your Montgomery batting practice, what we call it, and our process-based scrimmage. And then all that right there is at the end of our first day of baseball practice. And it feels like we've covered a ton, but it is just so much fun to come to our practices. And, you know, five years ago, I, I don't know that it was fun. You know, it, Coach Brooks was doing too much uh, in and out and, and batting practice, and that's it, guys. Let's go home. But, you know, and just learning all this stuff, we didn't come up with any of it. We learned it from from the guys, at, uh, college coaches that we go talk to, uh, Louisiana Lafayette, you know, Mississippi State, you know, Alabama, Auburn. Uh, Brian Kane, oh my gosh, so much stuff that he's taught us for the mental game. You know, you sit there and ask the average baseball player uh, how much of the game is mental. Most of the time it's somewhere between 50 and 70% is their answer. And so if, if that's if that part of the game, if baseball is 50 to 70% mental, then you've got to coach it. And we use those team meetings before we go out to practice and we coach the mental game. We review yesterday's practice. And, and, it, and it is just unbelievable um, um, how we uh, have used that team room to our advantage as coaches. And it just creates a great environment. Now we got guys that graduated five years ago that come back and they talk to these kids that are growing up that were in the sixth grade when they graduated. And they talk about how important the team meeting room was for them. And it's just an unbelievable place. It's kind of our little safe haven that, that we kind of go to every day when things are going really good or things are going really bad. Uh, we kind of look at you know how that happened in that team room, and it's been great for our program. Uh, it sounds like it. it. Sounds like it's a it's a place to grow. It's a place to fail, but That's it's right. also a place to learn the process as well. So, what is the uh, what's the latest thing learned? You know, uh, I would say the latest thing learned from me on the field it's got to be holding runners. Jerry Weinstein uh, is a guy that. Um, that uh, has taught me a bunch. You guys can follow him on Twitter. If you don't, um, you're missing out. I mean, he just has so many YouTube videos and explanations. And just to listen to him talk, he's a big-time small ball talking guy. I don't really know how he coaches. I've never played for him. I've never seen teams he's coached. But when you're talking with Jerry Weinstein, he just talks your head off about holding runners, bunt coverage, pickoffs, first and third, covering the bag, and Believe it or not, over the last two years, we've given up one stolen base from second to third, and it's all because of we've implemented some things that Jerry Weinstein believes in. So that's kind of the on-the-field thing that we've learned recently that I think helps us here in our program. Off the field is using that team room wisely and to our advantage to grow and build leadership. We have a leadership council meeting on Thursday, and one other day of the week is we kind of choose this as as we as time allows because of rainouts and practice and games. But one other day of the week, we have our freshmen come in and learn the pride program from Brian Kane's mental game, personal responsibility, and daily excellence. There's five P's, four R's, three I's, two D's, and an E. 
E being excellence, and excellent meaning being your best when your best is required. That's kind of our foundation uh, for to go into leadership or being a follower and, and talking about followership. And then we have our 10th and 11th grade class that, that we kind of take them through an emerging leadership class that they're going to become leaders or they're in the process of becoming a leader. And then our seniors, we take them through the mental, uh, the leadership VIP that uh, Matt Morris has, has developed and gotten uh, great leaders across the country to talk about characteristics of leadership and why leaders fail and why leaders succeed and what, what are some top things that leaders have. And um, so we really get to the nuts and bolts of what it means to be a great leader. And I used to think, uh, you know, five, 10 years ago, my answer would be, well, how come y'all don't have a good year? And I'd say, well, our leadership wasn't there. And now I have realized as a coach that building leaders is on my shoulders. If we don't have good leaders in our locker room, if we don't have good leaders on the field, then that's my fault as the ultimate captain of the team. I've got to coach and teach these guys how to be leaders in today's society. They don't get enough of that. You never know what's going on at home. You can't expect, okay, this guy's a senior, so he's going to be our leader. It has to be talked about. It has to be coached just like that uh, ground ball in the 5-6-0. That's probably the biggest thing, leadership, and and obviously uh, the MVP process, the uh, championship culture that Brian Kane talks about. We, we started uh, following Brian about three years ago. And it's been a life changer, not only on the field, but off the field for our players. And our players come up with an MVP as our mission, vision, and principles. Our players come up with what, what our mission is, what our vision is for the year, and the principles of our team, our core values. And uh, we and, and during the offseason, we call it Wednesday Wisdom in our championship culture team meeting room. And that's when we get speakers to come in, kind of like University of Alabama's First and Ten Club. Nick Saban will get like a banker to come in and speak. And then any of the guys that want to be a banker or are interested in that field will stay back and develop a relationship. And that way, when they get finished of college, they can go back and maybe do an intern. Then the next week, you might get a, uh, a doctor or a lawyer or, or whatever a field a guy wants to go in. And he's already developing a five-minute relationship with that guy. So when he gets out, you know, he's kind of headed down the path of, of being successful. So the things, the latest things that I've learned, obviously holding runners at second base being the thing on the field that I'm excited about, but I'm more excited about, you know, what, what does Urban Meyer have in his locker room that could help us here at Oxford High School? What does Dabo Sweeney have at Clemson, in Clemson's locker room that can help us win here in the locker room at Oxford High School? And I try to go out. I've, I've never been a book reader in my life. I'm still not a paperback reader. I'm more of an audio guy now because I'm on the road. I'm always constantly doing something. I'm cutting grass so I can just kind of flip my headphones on and just learning how guys do things and learning how successful people uh, become successful from the bottom to the top. And it's just been life-changing for me. And 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 we'll, we'll take a book and we'll do a book study with our team. And, you know, something will pop out and, and that'll be our team word for the year. And then next thing you know, you got all your players being all in on one philosophy. And if you can get your players to buy in on, on whatever philosophy it is, that's that's huge in itself. And then and then as they grow and and, and, and I tell you what, uh, Jonathan, the biggest thing is getting our players 
to be the speakers in our team meetings. If you get our players, you know, like Brian King says, that you got to know it, you got to do it and own it. If our older guys own that team meeting room, then they will show these younger guys what it means to be a leader. They will show these younger guys what it means to hustle and on and off the field, what it means to have a clean locker room. So when we get our older guys to kind of own those team meetings, and, and sometimes we do have our own guys as the guest speaker, it goes a long way compared to what Coach Brooks can do and what he can say when he stands up in front of the room. You know, when, when you got an older guy to come up and tell our team that, hey, you know, we got to get better at two-strike hitting today, guys, it's much better when they hear one of their teammates say that as opposed to our hitting coach kind of dogging us out right before practice about two-strike hitting. So those are the two things that I guess I'm excited about that we have uh, recently learned and implemented in our program. Love it. Uh, is there any way I could get you to divulge into the holding runners? Yeah, you know, uh, we, we've done a couple different things. We've actually uh, let our middle infielders dictate all of this. And and the biggest thing, you know, I, I can tell you, our, I can tell you the way we hit. I can tell you the way we hold runners. I can tell you the way we practice ground balls. I can tell you the way our catchers work, but it's how you implement what you know, what you get from another coach. It's how well you implement that on a daily basis. So what we do of holding runners from second base is we let our shortstop release the pitcher to go to the plate. That shortstop might make that pitcher hold for five seconds. He might make him hold for one second, but he's got some signal that he does that tells that pitcher Go to the plate right now. And when, when he goes to the plate, then when I give him that signal, that means for me to do that two shuffle back to my position. Um, obviously, there's going to be times where there's a guy going to be at second base that, that you know is not going to run. Um, so there's a signal for that, like, hey, we're not going to release you. You can do whatever you want. But 90% of the time, our middle infielders are letting that pitcher know to go to the plate right now. Well, obviously, that makes the pitcher uncomfortable, right? We had a guy two years ago when we started this, like, Coach, I don't feel comfortable letting that guy release me. I'm wanting to go home now, and he's holding me for five seconds. You got to get your pitchers comfortable being uncomfortable, and it starts on the first day of bullpens. You've got to find a way for that guy to throw half of his pitches from the stretch with a runner at first, imaginary, and half of his pitchers from the stretch with a runner at second, imaginary. And you got coaches with a stopwatch on their slide. We don't call it slide step anymore. We call it load and go. Because I think when you call it slide step, guys are so quick to the plate that we lose a little bit. We want them to still be able to load in that back hip and go to the plate and still keep that same velocity. So we call it load and go now instead of slide step. But our short stops are standing there during our bullpens behind the pitcher. And, and, you know, every now and then as a coach, I might say step off. Or every now and then as the coach, I might give the signal to the catcher for our inside move, no throw. But you've got to for you, your bullpens have to be organized in such a manner that it's simulating game speed. And that's the biggest thing as a coach is learning drills that are simulating game speed. Even the step off. If a guy for the first time in his pitching career, sophomore on the mound, game two of the season, and the first runner at first leaves early, and that first baseman yells step off. If he's never practiced that, I guarantee you he's going to ball. So as a coach, going in, your bullpens, you have to, you know, you schedule it. You know, fastball away, fastball away, breaking ball dirt. Step off. You got to practice those things. You got you to do the shadow bullpens. You got to stop him and say, hey, you just gave up a leadoff triple. What is your negative release? 
How are you going to relax and refocus on the next pitch? You got to have a pre-inning routine, a pre-batter routine, and a pre-pitch routine. And I make the guys write them down and write it out so that that they're so caught up in that routine that if they do give up a leadoff triple, they go back to that negative that routine of negative release, relax, and refocus. Let's throw a quality pitch. Next thing you know, we get a ground ball to the third baseman. He checks the runner, throws the first. We get a pop up to the infield, and we get a strikeout. And now we're out of the inning. And but if he thinks, man, I got to strike all three guys out, and not think about I got to throw a quality pitch right here, and that's all that matters, then he turns. And then now it's a big inning for the other team. But that's probably uh, uh, the biggest thing is holding runners is letting the middle infielders release the pitcher to go to the plate, and and it can be whatever. It can be a wiggle of the glove. It can be a pat. It can be the open glove. You know, most time a shortstop opens his glove, you know, the third base coach is yelling back. So whatever it is, any kind of little signal to the pitcher, and all we do is one look. I'll tell the whole country right now, we look one time to second base. We've given up one stolen base to third base in the last two years. And I'm telling the whole country that we only look one time to second base. And you're like, man, you just you just gave it away. You're only looking one time. Well, our – our, now, our shortstop also has a signal that that pitcher can inside move. Anytime he gets ready, I'm close to the bag. I'm close enough to the bag. By the time you inside move and throw it to me at second, I'm going to be there. So we have a signal to let him know that I'm close enough. You just jump spin and I'll be there. So it's it's cool. That, you know, I kind of guess, guess I'm giving away our secrets, but it's how you implement it. And, and how great you become at that something that's so small. And how huge is it going into a year that you know that nobody's going to get from second to third unless the ball's put in play or unless there's a pass ball? That's huge. Because three years ago, we gave up 17 stolen bases from second to third. And that was a point of emphasis. So it's probably, you know, failing at it uh, made me ask questions and spend time with some with the best of the best and figuring out what they do. Uh, like, like, what does the Florida Marlins do if they make it to the World Series and your best base, the best opposing team's base runner is on second base with one out trying to steal third, what is your? And so those are the questions that I ask, and I've kind of, kind of found something that I think our team and our guys like. It's uncomfortable for the pitchers to do, but man, once you master it, I mean, we had we 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 played guys that that stole you know four, 40 bases. And they try to steal third on us, and we're throwing them out by seven, ten feet because our pitcher's not not giving them a good jump. I mean, in, in their the coach is like they're only looking once, and it's just the way our guys implement it, and our coaching staff does a really good job of holding them accountable and being comfortable. Being uncomfortable is probably the biggest thing, and that the pitchers have got to understand that. Now, once they do it for three weeks, that's all they know how to do. You know, sometimes we do it so much that when that slow runner gets on second base, they do it anyways because they're just so used to doing it, you know. So that's kind of something that uh, that we've learned recently that's kind of helped our freebie war, winning the freebie war. We keep up with so many charts in the dugout. We we got our freebie war going on. Obviously, you know, walk, hit by pitch, reach on an error, and then we got our, our dirt ball reads, our stolen bases, and, you know, pass balls, wild pitches, all those. So, so we got a freebie war, and, and then we got the big five, score first, big inning, answer back, extend the lead, and, and finish. And, and that's one thing. And <laughs> here's another thing. At the end of each game, we got this thing called the stud belt. Our, our hitting coach bought it. It's like 300 bucks. It's a big, you know, like rest, world wrestling belt or whatever. So whoever has the biggest impact on the big five, whether it's whoever had the third RBI of the beginning 
or whoever finished the game with a leadoff walk or whoever scored first or whatever, whichever part of the big five that we keep up with will have the biggest impact of the game. That guy in our in our circle of life team meeting after the game gets the stud belt, and obviously we take a picture. And our hitting coach posted on social media, and everybody's got the belt and smiling. And and when we got percentages, you know, you know, obviously, you know, we got it from uh, Coastal Carolina about I don't know about ten years ago, but now for us, since we've been keeping up with this since like 2011, out of those big five categories, anytime we get three out of those five. Oxford baseball wins 87% of the time. Anytime we get four out of those five of big five, we win 94% of the time. And anytime when we get all five, we win 100% of the time. And, and you, know, our, you know, we keep up with so many things. It's unbelievable what our coaching staff does as far as keeping up with. But, you know, if you want to get better at something, you got to measure it. Measurement equals motivation. And uh, we probably overdo it. But there's always something when your team's down by four and you're keeping up with it, that guy that's on the bench or that manager, he's like, hey, that's a hit-by-pitch, guys. You know, 87% of the time when you have a big inning, a big a hit-by-pitch walk or an error happens. So, you know, anytime something like that happens, we keep up with so much stuff that we're bound to find something positive, you know, even if we're up by six or down by six. So and then you got your decal charts. You got the process game. I mean, there's so many things going on in our dugout. It's just unbelievable. And, and I'll be honest with you, as a head coach, there's times that I think that we do too much. And then all of a sudden, that freebie war, we hadn't talked about it in three or four games. And then all of a sudden, we get three freebies in a row, and our dugouts are going nuts because we know that about 95% of the time we win the freebie war, we're going to win the game. So, And our hitting coach does a good job of explaining this on Midnight Madness when we go over our offensive philosophy. He throws out these numbers. Our guys can't wait. Like our guys this year that are juniors in 2017, our 2018 seniors can't wait to see our percentages from this past year when our hitting coach talks. And on the flip side of the big five, I don't even have to talk about it as pitching and defense because we know how huge it is of winning the big inning battle. If we give up two runs and the base is loaded and one out, we get a double play and get out of the inning, we come to the dugout fist pumping because we only gave up two runs because that third run meant that we were going to lose the big inning battle. We were going to let them have one extra point on the big inning battle. So and the other team's like, man, they gave up two runs. Why are they excited? You know, just that's just saying that keeps that positive energy going. You know, John Gordon will tell you about positive energy all day long, and it means a lot. Great leaders. Uh, he's got a new book out, something about uh, leading leadership in uh, in a positive way. And, and you know, he's I've read several books by him. And those, you know, that's the thing about coaching, um, just kind of having those resources out there that you can go to when things are going great and you want to get better, or things are going terrible and you want to change something. I'm just imagining you guys carrying a file cabinet to your dugouts before every game. <laughs> You know, I, I told you about the anvil. You're probably like, what is the anvil? What does that mean? What is the anvil story? Well, we actually have like a 200-pound anvil in our dugout. The story behind the anvil in that last little uh, uh, obstacle course challenge is the player is the piece of metal. The adversity that he goes through is when you dip that piece of metal in the fire. And the, the victory is dipping it in water, and it's his final shape. And the hammer is the coaches and the parents and the teachers that are just chiseling away at your life. And the anvil itself is everything that makes you up uh, as a person today. So we show a video each year, and it's got the anvil story in it. 
and it has a lot of meaning uh, growing up iron sharpens iron one man sharpen another uh, proverbs 27 17 and that's just something that 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 we carry uh we had a manager we had a, some hand trucks and we'd go on the road you know we we started out the year one year we won 12 in a row and then we went on the road and left the anvil in our dugout at home and we lost and ever since that moment that sucker got some hand trucks and he's getting off the bus and carrying that anvil 200 pound anvil to the dugout now we've got a little small styrofoam anvil that we painted so because that guy was struggling and the, and the real anvil just stays in our dugout but i'll tell you what now there'll be some times where we're down by three or four runs in the sixth inning and one of our seniors would just pick up that anvil set it on the on deck circle and and they go back and remember them pushing through that day and the thing about the anvil is the top nine guys that that finish get t-shirts that says anvil champion and obviously the winner gets his name on the anvil champion plaque, but they only get the t-shirts as ever, if everybody on the team finishes. So as soon as those top nine finish, they go to that last guy on their team and they're pushing him and pushing him and encouraging him and helping him. And that simulates that guy on the bench, you know, that's not in the game. He's just as important as the leadoff guy, but you know, playing shortstop, you know, and, and pitching or whatever. So that's kind of a team concept thing that we grab and we stole from Coach Chafin at Cookville High School in Tennessee. He's been doing it for probably 10 years. And, you know, something like this this podcast here or, or the ABCA or just uh, just meeting coaches, uh, you know, when you're playing each other, just kind of stealing ideas and, and twisting it and making it your own is, is what uh, I think coaching is all about. Well, Coach, you've given them an unbelievable amount of information tonight, but I've got one question. Uh, before you go and that's what do you wish you had known before you took your first head coaching job before I took my first head coaching job I wished I would have known that it's all about developing that player as a person more so than developing a state champion I'll flip that around and and uh and say that uh being a champion in all phases of life in the classroom in the weight room whether it's opening a door for a female or picking up trash in our parking lot or, you know, all the making your bed, brushing your teeth and, and not texting and driving and wearing a seatbelt, just all these things that, you know, that we kind of take for granted. And, and, and those are, those are about winning the moment, but just helping that young man become a stronger man and growing up. Uh, now I know that that's what it is all about. And, and sometimes that tough love as a head coach, uh, we, uh, those players have to go through, but sometimes I think that's the best way. Um, sometimes we spend more hours with our players than their actual parents do at home. And when you sit back and, and understand that this guy is going to be around you for four years and what can I do to help him for the next 60 years of his life is kind of the biggest thing that I know now that when I first started coaching, it was all about winning games and, and winning on the scoreboard and winning championships. And now it's all about winning and learning, winning the moment. And if we don't win the moment, what did we learn from it? And how can we get better? We don't, I mean, I wish they would put a curtain over the scoreboard because you can, you can play good and win, you can play bad and win, you can play good and lose, you can play bad and lose. It's, and, and the process is that Nick Saban talks about all the time is it doesn't matter what just happened. All that matters is is giving quality effort on this next moment, on this next pitch, on this next down, on this next possession, in that next classroom, on this next lift in the weight room, 
you know, just and, and that just rolls on. It's not just on the field. If those players know as a coach that all you care about is how they perform on the field and they know that you know that they did something on the weekend that they shouldn't have done and you're high-fiving them just because they hit a stand-up double or whatever, then the, then you're failing that player. You've got to teach that kid the, kid the lessons that he's going to need to know 25 years down the road or 10 years down the road. And, and now – um, I can look each year. I look back and and I say, man, I, I failed the team last year. What can I get better to to help them become stronger men this year? And I try to do that, and I try to implement it. And each year, I can pick out things that, of teaching moments that maybe I failed that player that I try to look back and I say, man, I'm never going to do that again. I'm gonna, you know, because five years ago, I mean, you know, there, there were times where where we won it all, we won a state championship, and I can look back and think, man, I could have done a little bit better job of developing that kid as as a person and as a player and it would have helped him be be a great dad and a great father and a husband and a boss and you know so those are things that that you know and you get all that when you're old and you're wise you're a little more wiser and and you you hire a young coach and you see how you see yourself in them uh you know when you first started coaching and and i think it's just thing you know you got to go through it you got to go through it just like as a player you've got to fail before you can succeed and every time and you, you fail and you, and you try and you get better and learn from it and you fail and you, you, you work harder and, learn, and all of a sudden you succeed. And but, but baseball teaches you so much about life than any other sport because you fail more times than not, than succeed. And in life, we get up on a daily basis and more times we know that we got a tough day in front of us more so than it's going to be an easy day. So the game of baseball, it can beat you down if you let it. But if you talk about these things on a daily basis and appreciate the process and appreciate and embrace adversity, you can grow so much as a young man in this game. And you can give back to the, the, the players that are younger than you. You can give back five years down the road when you come back and talk about the times. Like I enjoy getting our players to come back and say, guys, when I was a junior in high school, I was at the lowest point of my life. And let me tell you what I did. I did this, I did that, I overcame the adversity that I was in, and now I'm running my own business. Those are the stories that I want my players to hear because I want them to know that no matter how successful you are, those guys went through some tough times and they went through some adversity, but they overcame it. And that's what life is all about. You get knocked down seven times, you get back up eight and keep going. Well, I don't think there's a better way to end the podcast than that. <laughs> so, Coach, again, thanks for being on. Where can our listeners find you online in case they want to get in contact with you? And I know there will be some people who will. Okay. Um, Old Gold Sports is, is my Twitter uh, my Twitter account name. Uh, you know, I got Wes Brooks also, but Old Gold Sports is kind of the main one. The only time I don't tweet from that account is during our game. And one of our assistant coaches tweet uh, out messages. And I kid around with my coaching uh, buddies around the country. They think I'm in third base tweeting like the guy just, you know. <laughs> I, <so. laughs> I have wondered that myself. Yeah, actually. that is funny. I've gotten a lot of comments on that. But I let one of my coaches, uh, well, you know, one year it was a guy who knew the game of baseball. And one year it was a football guy doing it that didn't really know much. So they got a little kick, a lot of kicks out of that. Um, Oxford Black Gold Baseball is our face, Facebook account. I obviously got a, uh, my own personal Wes Brooks Facebook account. And I also run our football Facebook account. It's Oxford Black Gold Football. 
And uh, obviously, my my email is uh, I'll give you my Gmail account. It's wbrooksoh at gmail.com. W B R O O K S O H at gmail.com. And those are the four ways you can get in touch with me and on social media or on the internet. And uh, that's the part that made me such a great coach. That's why I enjoy these podcasts so much is being able to share some information that somebody else out there in the country is possibly going to pick up one thing. It might be uh, the anvil. It might be the process scrimmage. It might be the MVP or whatever. Uh, I just know that some young coach is going to pick that up and it's going to be a better program because of it. So I love sitting down and emailing. I I love going and visiting coaches, but at the same time, I like when coaches come to visit us. You know, we turn our chairs around backwards and we get some pizza and we'll spend three three hours. We spent nine hours with a staff last year. Uh, A a team from in the county came and talked to our staff and wanted to implement the process game during during the season. Now there's three schools in the county who every time there's a foul ball hit into the net, both teams are trying to run and beat the other guy getting the foul ball into the net. So, and that's just the fun part about baseball is, is the relationships that you build over time is, is just unbelievable. And, uh, I'll always be in debt to my baseball buddies of the information that they shared with me over an email or a phone call or a private message and social media or whatever. So I'm definitely open to all that. Look forward to all you guys reaching out and talking some ball. Thank you for listening to Ahead of the Curve. If you'd like to get in touch with me or view the show notes, you can find all of that information on our website at aotcpodcast.com. Please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review to help others find and stay ahead of the curve.